Hello, you've reached the podcast at Chesbro Baptist Church. We're continuing in our series on the life of Joseph. And Joseph has went through the pit, Potiphar, prison, and now he's finally to Pharaoh. The title of the message this morning is In His Time. Please enjoy. All right, take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to Genesis chapter number 41. Genesis chapter number 41. Uh, we've been preaching for the past uh, four or five weeks now in the life of Joseph. And we've got a few weeks left in our series as we work our way through the Bible, as we work our way through the life of this great man who uh, a good portion of the book of Genesis is dedicated to this guy named Joseph. You know, a good portion of this book is dedicated to this one man. So this is a man that, that God wants us to know about. This is a man that God wants us to study. And as we look at the life of Joseph, what we're going to notice is how much Joseph's life is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and, and, and that's all that the New Testament is. It's just the New Testament is a magnifying glass for the Old Testament. And, and when you consider the New Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, you see Christ in just about every aspect of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about Jesus Christ. And the life of Joseph is no different. Genesis chapter 41, and if you have your places, one last time, if you're physically able, I'm going to invite you to stand in respect and reverence to the Word of God. We'll read our verses, pray, and then sit back down. We're going to begin reading this morning Genesis 41, and uh, chapter 41, and verse 41. And the Bible says, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt, and Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him the ride in the second chariot which he had and they cried before him, bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without thee shall no man lift up his head or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah, and he gave to him his wife Azanath, the daughter of Potipharah, a priest of On. And Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. The title of the message this morning is In His Time. In His Time. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, once again we bow our heads before you and pray that you put power on the service this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd bless us as we listen to the words of God, as we read the words of God, as we listen to what the Spirit has to say to us today. I pray that you'd clear our minds and hearts to receive it this morning. Bless our service once again. Be with us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Man, we've been on quite the journey through Joseph's life. And first, you know, we started out in the pit. 
and the pit was just a horrible place to be. And then it, that pit, it took us to Potiphar's house to slavery. And man, being a slave is never fun. So we went from pit, we went to Potiphar, and then we went to prison. And man, just when you think in Joseph's life, it couldn't get any worse. Bam! Like Emerald, bam! It gets worse in Joseph's life. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. And Joseph keeps being pushed down and pushed down and pushed down. And Joseph is a human being. And maybe Joseph thinks, man, when, when, when are things going to go my way? When are things going to go my way? Because everything's going against me. And then all of a sudden, one day, bam, he sees Pharaoh. And now his glorification and now him being lifted up begins. And me and you who have been through this journey with Joseph, we say to ourselves, well, you know what? It's about time. It's about time, Joseph. It's about time, God. You showed up and blessed this man uh, who's been in the pit and been with Potiphar and been in prison and people have forgotten him and his family's forgotten him and Potiphar's forgotten him. His brothers forgot him. The baker forgot him. The butler forgot him. Everybody forgot Joseph, but God didn't forget Joseph. And now the time has finally come. The time has finally come to lift Joseph out of that pit, to lift Joseph out of prison and put him on uh, the place that God would have for him. And all me and you can say is, well, it's about time. Well, here's the thing about time. If he's, uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. You won't know God's timing, but I assure you, he does have a time. There will be a time when you will be lifted up. And Christian, I want you to remember that as we go, continue to go through the life of Joseph. You may be in a pit today. You may be down in a valley. You may be in your own little prison. But I guarantee you there is coming a time that God has planned for him to lift you up out of that. You won't know the time, but he does have one. Let's talk about Joseph's name. The name that the Pharaoh gave Joseph was Zathnath Panath. Zathnath Paneah. And Zathnath Paneah, you know what that name means. A.W. Pink says to the Egyptians, that would have meant Savior of the world. So Joseph, like Christ, had come through a time of suffering. And now... He becomes the human savior of Egypt. And all through your Bible, what is Egypt a picture of? The world. Do we see the parallel between Joseph and Christ this morning? For God so loved the world. I'm going to jump right into my message this morning. Point number one, Joseph's burden. Joseph's burden. I'm going to go ahead and give you what his burdens, burdens were, and then we'll go back through them. The first, uh, the three burdens he, he, he carries is we have the burden of prosperity, we have the burden of power, and we have the burden of the potential for pride. So let's go through these three burdens that he carried this morning. First, let's talk about 
prosperity. You know what prosperity often does? Prosperity often substitutes the material, uh, the substitutes the material for the spiritual. Okay, that's what prosperity does, or reverse that. Uh, but anyway, oh, let me read for you Genesis 41, 42-43. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand, and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck, and made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, bow the knee, and he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. You know, Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to say it's tragic when a person succeeds before they're ready. Have you ever heard of people who who win the lottery and they absolutely destroy their lives? Have you ever heard about that? They win the lottery and then they absolutely destroy their lives. And, you know, it happens way more often than it doesn't happen. Here you have this family. You have this well-grounded, well, well-rounded family. And then all of a sudden they win the Powerball jackpot lottery and they absolutely lose their ever-loving minds. And they lose everything they have. And they burn through their, their fortune. They lose their family. They destroy their marriage some of them even end up committing suicide and what that shows you is that money can't make you happy money can't make you happy but they win the lottery and they they learn very quickly it's not all it's cracked up to be or maybe there's a loving family and man this family loves each other and this family gets together on Sundays and they have cornbread and fried, fried chicken and they have the turnip greens and, and they, have, they get together on Sundays and they, they just love each other. Oh, this family has so much love for each other and then all of a sudden one day they get the word that their rich uncle has died and has left them all the money. And so then this loving family they start backbiting and they start, they start backstabbing and they start gossiping and they start trying to trick each other and they start to, they, they're not such a loving family anymore. Now they're all just trying to get their hands on that do-re-mi. You know, I've been in youth leadership for most of my ministry. So still to this point, I've been in youth leadership more than I've been a pastor. And what I can tell you from experience, another aspect is you might have a teenager coming to church and this teenager comes to church and loves the Lord and loves God and comes to all the youth activities and prays and reads their Bible and studies their Bible and gives tests when they get back from camp. This teenager will get behind the pulpit and give a testimony about how God blessed them at camp. And then all of a sudden, one day, they get a job. And that job starts paying them money. And then you don't see them at church all that often anymore. Oh, I'm not going to make this youth activity. I'll make the next one. I'll, uh, I'll see you next week. They're calling me into work. And all of a sudden, you don't see him anymore. You don't see him too much in the house of God. You know, Jesus met a young man who was very wealthy. Now, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something about this wealthy young man that Jesus met. It was a very rare thing for a young man to be wealthy in Jesus' day. 
It was very, very rare. Most of the time, the people in Jesus's day who were, uh, you know, who were uh, uh, wealthy uh, were on the older side. It wasn't like today where you get born and, and then when you turn 16, you get a big pick em up truck and, and, and you get the trust fund and you get all these things. And it's not like it is was like it is today. Uh, back then, it was very rare for a young man to have wealth. And so we have this young man, he comes to Jesus and he looks at Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, you have to remember the story, because if you don't if you don't hold the whole story in context, you would think Jesus is telling this young man that he has to work his way into heaven. But that's not what Jesus is saying. This young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do? He said, what can I do to be saved? Well, that's not how salvation works. And so Jesus said, well, okay, if you're asking me what you can do to be saved, keep all the commandments and you go to heaven. And then the young man foolishly said, man, I've kept all the commandments since I was a youth. I've, I, he basically, he's telling, I've, I've never sinned. Let's read the encounter. Matthew 19, 22, 22. The young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? And then Jesus said unto him, well, since you're perfect, since you just told me you're perfect, go and sell all that thou hast, give it to the poor, and shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. You know what Jesus is doing right there? Jesus is showing this young man that he's not perfect. Jesus is trying to teach this young man that he is a sinner. You cannot get somebody saved unless you convince them they are a sinner first. That is point number one on, on when I give somebody the gospel. Point number one is you are a sinner. You have to convince somebody that they are a sinner. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to convince this young man that he is a sinner. And then what happens? But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It was this prosperity that kept this young man from eternal life in heaven. It was prosperity that will send this young man to hell one day. Prosperity is a burden. And now this burden lays on the shoulders of Joseph. What's another burden we have today that Joseph carried? He had the burden of power, the burden of power. Power seeks its own preservation rather than God's plan. Genesis 41, 44, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. You know what John Philip said? He said, Power is a heady wine intoxicating quickly. Has anybody in here before ever power tripped? I didn't ask you if you knew somebody who power tripped. I asked, have you ever power tripped? Because I guarantee you, uh, most of us, if not all of us, have done that. And, you know, and, and I can give you an, one of my favorite examples of me 
power tripping. And so I was a teenager and, uh, you know, I wasn't the, you know, the uh, athletic person always uh, that I am today. And uh, so I wasn't always the athletic person. And so I was a teenager and they were picking, they were having a pickup softball game at school and the principal picked me to be the captain. Man, I had never been captain of anything in my life. And when he asked me to be captain of that softball game, you, you'd have thought he'd have asked me to be manager of the New York Yankees. And man, I, 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 got, I got my chest puffed out and I was walking around and yeah, I'm the captain, I'm the captain. You go over here, you go over there. And so I went back and I was playing second base and I was standing back on second pace with my, with my arms crossed and I was looking out over my team, watching them play like I was supervising game seven of the World Series and I'm looking out and they're running past me, behind me in second base, about to knock me over because I'm just... Man, I'm just, I'm just, man, I'm in charge. I've got the power. I've got the power. And, uh, you know, uh, they were about to knock me down into the dirt. But, you know, we all kind of power tripped before. Now, Joseph had power. He had power. Joseph had all the power he could ever want. If revenge was Joseph's purpose, revenge would be his prize. If that was his purpose, that would be his prize. But that didn't happen, did it? It didn't happen. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus had all the power too. What did, what did Uncle Ben tell Peter Parker before he became Spider-Man? What was it? With great power comes great responsibility. You know what I'm saying to you today? I'm saying today, the greater the power, the greater need for restraint. The greater the power, the greater need for restraint. You know what power highlights? Power highlights the need for meekness. I am amazed at how the world pictures Jesus. They picture Jesus as just some weak nothing who you could just run over and take advantage of and, you know, turn the other cheek. And so, you know, he never stands up for himself because he's meek. And what they do is, I guess because it rhymes, they take the word meekness and think that that means the same thing as weakness. And it doesn't. Meekness is not weakness. You know what meekness is? Meekness is strength under control. It's not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. It takes a stronger person. It takes a, a stronger person, a stronger attitude, a stronger personality to not say anything. It takes a stronger person to hold back your feelings. It takes a stronger person not to lash out at somebody who deserves it. That's the stronger person. Meekness is strength under control. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 15. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Paul is saying, the more I love you, 
the less I'm loved, and I would not have it any other way. The Apostle Paul was not worried about his power over the church. He wasn't worried about his preservation as the one who was overseeing the work. He wasn't worried about that. And Joseph's life becomes a picture of one who used power wisely. Of someone who used their power for the good of others and not to benefit themselves. When you do get power and you do get authority, do you use it to benefit yourself or do you use it to benefit others? Joseph's life is an example of someone who used their power to benefit other people. Number C, we have pride. We have the potential for pride. You know what pride does? Pride looks at the mirror instead of the maker. Pride looks at the mirror instead of the maker. You know what pride was? Pride was the sin of Lucifer. It was the sin of Lucifer. Isaiah 14, 13 through 14. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation and the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That sounds like pride to me. Satan was so familiar with the sin of pride that when he came to Eve in the garden, you know what sin he used to tempt her with? Pride. He said to her, if you eat of the fruit, you shall be as gods. What was Satan's sin? He was prideful. He wanted to be like God. So he knew what he was doing. He used that same thing against Eve. And you know, whatever, since that day, the sin of pride is inbred into every single heart from the lowliest beggar to the saintliest saint. This is a battle that we face every single day. You want to think about Jesus for a second. Jesus was the center of all power. He was the center of all power. He was the personification of everything that's beautiful. He said to his disciples, all power is given to me. But even though he had all power, he was the same one who made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Not only when Joseph took the throne, he clothed himself in humility. We see nothing in Scripture that tells us that Joseph didn't remain humble for the rest of his days. Joseph was humble. Joseph had humility. You know, and, you know we see this. Joseph, for instance, let me give you an example. Joseph knew the traditions of Egypt. Joseph knew the traditions of Egypt. We're not going to get, we're not reading about this story today, but we'll get to it eventually. He's going to tell his brothers, he's going to say in Genesis 46, 34, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So what he's going to tell his brother is, hey, when you come in, tell them you're cattlemen. Don't tell them you're shepherds because they absolutely hate shepherds. But then, you know, it's funny, Joseph said that, but then later on, what do we see him do? 
It's time for Joseph's dad to come to come to Egypt. And Pharaoh is standing there. He's sitting in his throne room in his resplendent glory. And he has, it, has the throne room decked out. Pharaoh has all the gold and all the silver and all the jewels on the walls. He's got, Pharaoh's got his entourage lining the walls. He's got his noble guard there. Man, it's just resplendent glory in the throne room. Pharaoh is getting ready to meet the dad of Joseph, man, what's what's Joseph dad's going to be like? Is he going to be some wealthy businessman? Is he going to be some great wise man? Is he going to be some grand sheik from a faraway land? And Joseph's dad walks in and he's a shepherd. A man of lowly attire, plain dress, a nomad who lives tent to tent. You see, Joseph had longed in a way with any sense of False pride. Joseph had done away with that. This was his beloved father whom he now presents to the king. So we have Joseph who presents his simple family to the king. And that's a lot like Jesus who takes us, just simple folk, nothing special about us, and presents us to the king, presents us to his father. Romans 10 11, for the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Joseph was not ashamed to show his dad to the Pharaoh and Jesus will not be ashamed to show me and you to his father. And we shouldn't be ashamed of him because of that fact. Number two this morning, we have Joseph's bride. Joseph's bride is actually a picture of the church. Genesis 41, 45, and Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah, and he gave him, uh, gave him the wife Azanath, the daughter of uh, Potipharah, priest of On. And Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph is given a gentle bride. She is a picture of the church. You know, we know very little about her past. We know very little about her past. You see, we're so taken with Joseph. We're so taken with Joseph that she gets very little attention, and rightly so. And today, as the bride of Christ, we stand in awe on the glory of the one who has chosen us to be his own. Now the glory that emanates from Joseph now she gets to share in. Now when Joseph sits in the throne room, she gets to sit beside him. Now when Joseph goes on the chariot ride through town, she gets to ride shotgun. Now when Joseph stands and judges all over the land of Egypt, now she gets to be right there beside him. Not because of anything she did, but because of who Joseph is. And that is the bride of Christ. Because we get to be right there with him. Not because we're special. Not because we did anything to merit it. We didn't do anything to marry it. He chose us. So just like, just like Joseph, the, all the glory emanates from him. She's just along for the ride. That's me, that's me and you. All the glory and honor emanates from Christ. 
Ephesians 1.19 And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward believe according to the work of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but in the world which is to come and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all in all there jesus is and all his resplendent glory and all his honor he stands there lifted up above everybody And then there we are, not because of us, but because of him. You know, we don't know much about Joseph's bride. You know what we do know? We do know that she was raised to be a pagan. Now, her pagan past, because of Joseph, is blotted out. It's blotted out. You know, now Azarath is a glorious presentation of the church, the bride of Christ. You know, you've probably said this before yourself. Jesus said, in my, in my father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. One of my first thought is, okay, there are many mansions already there. So I don't know if I'm necessarily going to get a mansion. I don't know. But, you know, even if I do, even if he's going up there to build me a Scrooge McDuck mansion, you know, I'm, I'm going to be up there and I'll be like, you know, I don't need this mansion. I don't. Thank you, Lord. I appreciate it. Just give me a corner to sleep in. If I can be up there with you, that's all I need. Give me a cot in the corner. I'll sleep in the janitor's closet as long as I'm up there with you. And it's all because of nothing we did. It's all because of Jesus. Number three, we have Joseph's blessing. We have the blessing of bread and we have the blessing of birth. First, let's talk about the blessing of bread. Genesis 41, 47. And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities and the food of the field, which was round about every city. And laid he up the same. And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea, very much until he left numbering, for it was without number joseph like jesus was the one who provided the living bread do you think it's a coincidence that joseph did not start his life-saving work until he was 30 years old when did jesus start his ministry when he was 30 years old John 36, 35, and Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh unto me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Verse 47, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life, which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any, wait a minute, that's not right. I skipped too far ahead. 
There we go. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. I am the bread of life. I, I will give is my flesh, and, and the bread I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of of the world. Joseph is dispensing bread to the needy. He alone was the one you went to for food. You couldn't go to anybody else for food except for Joseph. Jesus is the only way. One day Oprah was filming a TV show talking about so many different ways to get to heaven. And a lady stood up who had courage, who wasn't afraid to go against Herr Oprah. And she stood up and she looked at Oprah on TV and in front of a whole country and she quoted a verse and then she said, Jesus is the only way. And then Oprah said, I don't believe that. Oprah said, man, uh, and, and you can get to God, God's on top of a mountain, and you can get to him any which way you choose. And he's not always called God. God goes by many different names, but all roads lead to the same God. I'm sorry, Oprah. That's not what this Bible says. Who's the bread of life? It is Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. If you want life, you've got no other option. You have to come to Jesus. Joseph becomes the Savior to all people in this story. John 3.15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Joseph had the provision. The whole world came to him because Joseph had the provision. And I'm here to tell you today that God has made a provision for us. Romans 10, 12. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. He has made a provision for us. So that's the blessing of the bread. Now let's talk about the blessing of the birth. Genesis 41, 50. And, Joseph, and unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Azanath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God said, He hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction." You know what the word Manasseh means? The Bible actually tells us what the word means right there. The word Manasseh means forgetting. It means forgetting. Now, obviously, from the rest of the story, he didn't forget his family. But what he forgot was the pain. He forgot the pain. Forgetting is the ability to remember without feeling the pain. That's what forgetting is. The ability to remember without feeling the pain. Joseph only had two options here. He could hold on to those who wronged him, or he could release them. Those were the only two options he had. That was it. You know what Joseph chose? Joseph chose the latter. He chose to release them. Sadly today, so many people are choosing to hold on to those that have wronged them 
And what is the result? It is bitterness. Bitterness is the result. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Follow peace with all men and holiness with which without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You know when it says there, fail the grace of God, you know what that means? It means fail to become about, fail to become a partaker. When we had our men's meeting last night, uh, we talked about bitterness and we talked about how bitterness chokes the grace of God out of you. That's what bitterness will do. The word fail there, it means to be left behind. Like you're running a race and you fail behind and you gave up and you didn't finish. You never accomplished your goal. Have you ever started a project and you got sidetracked and it sat there unfinished? And then you don't have enough time to go back and finish it. And so you walk by it every day and you just kind of just, just kind of stare at it. And there it sits as a monument as a monument to your procrastination and your laziness. I mean, that that's kind of, you know, I've experienced that before. Man, we've got some dagger eyes going on, some husbands out there. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've done that before myself and nobody likes that feeling. You know, what? bitterness is a spirit that refuses to be reconciled. Now look, I don't know why God had me preach a message on bitterness last night and lay on my heart to broadcast it to the whole church and get up here and tell you to listen to it when you get a chance. And then at the same time, all the while knowing that this series is going to take me into the subject of bitterness. I don't know why God told me to do that, but I'm, I'm assuming he had a reason for it. Because listen, you can't talk about Joseph's life without talking about bitterness. You know why? Because of all the people in the Bible, if anybody had a good reason to be bitter, it was Joseph. You know, we talked about how, uh, you know, you feel like you're, you're in a race and then you, you fell out. And, you know, this bitterness, you know, it, it, this means that God had something available to you that you failed to receive. Why? Because you knew better. So here's the thing. If bitterness takes grace away from us, then man, if we do something that gives us the grace of God, that'll help our bitterness. Wouldn't, wouldn't that stand to reason? That if bitterness takes grace away from us, then if we do something to get grace back, that'll help us with our bitterness. Well, what I read for you before was Hebrews 12, 14, and 15. The very next verse gives us an answer. Verse 16. Verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, yesterday we had a, 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 we had a, a, we had a work day and we had to put these sinks in. And underneath the sink was just a little galvanized cap on the hot side. And man, you could go up there and grab it with your hand and try to twist it and twist it. And man, if you didn't have a tool, that thing is not coming off. You, you can't get it off by yourself. So then that's when you have this little, little alien looking tool. This little alien looking thing that looks like a Tyrannosaurus puppet. This is a faucet wrench. And if I didn't have this... I was not going to get that sink off. 
Okay, so now that I gave you that illustration, let me tell you what I was planning to do. What I was planning to do was have McKenna come up here. I was planning to have a nail and a board and, and have him try to pull the nail out with his bare hands. Oh, you can't do it. Here's a hammer. Um, but you're lucky I couldn't find a nail this morning, McKenna, or else you'd have been up here. And uh, so, but the point is, sometimes you can't do things by yourself. Sometimes you need help. And look, if that bitterness is choking out the grace of God in your life, then you need to stand before his throne. You need to come before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and obtain grace to help you in your time of need. Because you see, you can't get bitterness out by yourself. You can't do it. You need help. Why? Bitterness is a sin. Bitterness is a sin. It is never justified in the Bible. Brother Brett, you don't know what they did to me. Bitterness is never justified in that Bible. It is a sin. Acts 8, 23, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He calls it sin. Ephesians 4, 26, be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You know what the symptoms of bitterness are? You're moody, demanding, rebellious. You ever seen somebody that's negative? They're just negative all the time. Just so pessimistic. Very unbalanced. Man, they just, uh, just become consumed with negative experiences. So what's the steps to overcoming bitterness? How do you overcome bitterness? Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. I think the first step to overcoming bitterness is stop trying to justify your bitterness and call it sin. Stop trying to justify your bitterness. Call it sin. I have every right to feel the way I feel. If this Bible calls it a sin, no, you don't. You don't have that right. See what the first step is, is confession. Don't come over here and confess it to me. I don't, don't confess it to me. Confess it to God. And you know what confessing does? Confessing is just agreeing with God that it's wrong. So you just bow your head and you come before the throne of grace and you pray and you say, God, this bitterness that I've been holding on to, I've come to the realization that it's sin and I've got to let it go. Please help me to get rid of this bitterness in my heart. That's the first step is confessing it to God. And number two, I think next you have to remember areas in your life where God has forgiven you. Remember, in Matthew 18, we read a story of this servant and this master, and this servant owed this master a great deal of money, and the master forgave him. Well, after the master forgave him, the servant went out and found a man that owed him a very small amount of money and threw that guy into prison. And then the master who forgave the debt heard about it. What happened? Matthew 18, 34, And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespass. 
If God knows all of my sin, he knows every sin that I've ever committed, even the sins I don't want you to know about. If he's forgiven all of my sin, just like he's forgiven yours, man, don't you think that I can forgive my fellow brother who's wronged me? I think so. Step three, stop holding others in debt. Wipe the slate clean. Wipe the slate clean. How long are you going to hold something over somebody's head? How long are you going to do that? Till you, till you go to the grave? Is that how long you're going to do it? You're going to live miserable your whole life? How long are you going to hold something over somebody's head? Let me tell you something. Until you wipe the slate clean, you're the one who's the prisoner. You're the one who's suffering, not the other person. And then number four, and I think this, this one's important. Realize recovery is not instant, but forgiveness is. Recovery is not instant, but forgiveness is. Man, if I have a broken bone, man, that bone, it's not going to get healed instantly. I'm not going to go into the sick bay of the enterprise and they're going to wave a little doohickey over my arm. It's going to fix my arm. You know, that's not going to happen. OK, so my arm, it's not going to heal instantly. But you know what does need to happen? It instantly needs to be set. It needs to be set right then or it's going to heal crooked. Or I'm going to have to go through my life with a deformity. Recovery is not instant, but forgiveness is. Look, it's not a sin to feel hurt. It's not a sin to feel hurt. Feeling hurt, it, it's something that's going to happen. You are going to get hurt. If, and especially if you deal with human beings, human beings are going to hurt you. It is not a sin to feel hurt by someone. It is a sin to let that hurt turn into bitterness. So feeling hurt is not a sin. It's when you let it, feeling hurt is inevitable. You know, if you deal with humans, you're going to get hurt. But man, it's when you let that hurt turn into bitterness. That's when it becomes a sin. So pray to God that that never finds a place in your life. Maybe today you need a Manasseh in your life. You need a forgetting. Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto these thing, those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Maybe you need a Manasseh today. Maybe you need a forgetting. Do you know what followed Manasseh? Ephraim. You know what Ephraim means? It means fruitful. It means fruitful. Galatians 5, 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now that I've got rid of this bitterness that's choking out the Spirit and choking out the grace of God, I've forgotten about it. Now here comes the fruit of the Spirit. You can, you, you can again enjoy the wonderful fruit of the Spirit of which God's power is the key.
if you want to be fruitful and if you want to help others, you know what you have to do? You have to remember to forget. Forget.